Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. And you can get your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3. Praise God that he's given us his divine word that we can partake in. Amen. And praise God that we are a church that has a culture where we love unpacking the word. Amen. So you guys are ready to do some unpacking of the word this morning? I'm excited to dig into our text today. My sons and I just concluded a fun basketball season last week. I had the joy of coaching over 30, yes, over 30, 6th and 7th graders in a game that I love. And coaching at every level is enjoyable for different reasons. If you've ever coached before, you know this. Uh, At their age, the joy is found in being able to teach them the fundamentals and the foundations of basketball. And it will set the tone for their futures in the sport. But for any of you who have coached before, it's a lot harder than simply telling them the correct form that will allow them to master any given movement. Well, you just shoot like this, a coach says, right? Now, if kids were just a blank slate, that would make life easy. In actuality, though, each child comes with innate body mechanics and tendencies that have to be overcome before the new more correct movements can be consistently achieved. And so great purposefulness and consistent repetition has to go into drills in which the players can put to death those old innate tendencies so that the new, more purposeful and efficient movements can take place. And all of which leads to greater success in the sport. One tendency and movement has to die so that a better movement can take its place. Now, this is often the point at which the the greatest pushback happens. But coach, the player says, I already know how to play. I already know how to shoot. And so my job as a coach is to help them grasp that while it may seem unnatural and difficult now, and it may even lead to a worse shot and less made baskets to start with, eventually it will help them grow into an athlete that can perform at the highest level of their craft. And this is the case with much of life, is it not? In order to start a new habit, let's say being healthy, we can't just eat a few veggies and go pump some iron. We have to go down to a foundational level and make a lifestyle change. Any of you who've ever started a diet or tried a workout regimen know this. It goes well for 10 minutes, a day, a week, or two. You have to go down to a lifestyle change where we put to death the bad habits of poor sleep hygiene, binging Netflix till two in the morning, eating a ton of junk food. We have to do this before we can put in place new habits of waking up early and working out and eating right. Death must happen before something new and more perfect can resurrect, amen? The Apostle Paul knew this to be true, and so as he wrote the epistle we are now unpacking, he is beginning to give us practical, applicable advice on how to live, and how to be sanctified as Christians. Now, in many of his letters, Paul spends the first half or so of the epistle praying for the church and teaching them good orthodoxy, or right doctrine. And then in the second part of the letter, he usually enters into what's called orthopraxy, or right practice. And this right practice results from that right doctrine. Everybody say orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Right doctrine, everybody say orthopraxy right practice. And Paul does the same here in Colossians because, if you will recall the situation surrounding this letter, his good friend Epaphras had come to him while Paul was in prison. 
And he brought word that the church that Epaphras started is beginning to be torn apart from false doctrine and resulting division. There are false teachers, most likely some within the congregation, who are buying into Jewish or Gnostic mysticism. And so judgment and condemnation is flowing freely within the body as a result of this false doctrine. If it hasn't come full force, it's about to begin. And it is breaking apart the spiritual fellowship that's first initiated and was first initiated by the gospel. So Paul spent chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians refocusing the church's eyes away from the division and to Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished and done through the gospel and informing the church. And Paul calls the church of Colossae to refuse the encroaching false teaching and instead act within the identity that Christ has already given them as his resurrected, saved people. Since Christ is enthroned as king, he is calling all Christians to stop dividing like pagans and to start unifying in Christ and in his gospel. And so we then unpacked, with the help uh, of Pastor Nick gave us, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, two weeks ago, in which Paul challenges the church to think on and remember Christ with whom we have divided and resurrected. And we'll now take this summary of what Paul is calling the church to walk in and see it broken down into two parts. Two parts which are similar to learning a new way of playing a sport or behaving in a new manner. First, we must put aside that which was destructive, and then we must pick up that which is fruitful. And so this week we will begin in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, with the put-off section. And then we will begin in verses 10 through 11, what we will finalize next week in the put-on section. And here Paul is calling for the church to put our old nature to death. That's what we've entitled the sermon this morning, Putting Our Old Nature to Death. And if it sounds violent to you, it should. You see, through the work of Christ, each of us have already been crucified. And we live in a very sanitized culture. I want you to think what crucified means. It is a violent death. A violent death. We have been crucified with Christ. And we've been resurrected. And we've assumed our identity as the citizens of his kingdom because of this. But now, in the present time, the hard work is to do the activity necessary not to gain salvation, but for us to live in the truth of that spiritual work that's already been accomplished in us. And Paul described what happened in the spiritual plane in Colossians 2, what Christ did. But now we must do the work to live within that reality in the here and now. You can think about it like marriage. On the day of your vows, there is a spiritual reality that occurs where you are joined together as one, never to be separated in this life. For everyone in the room that is married, that comes easily for the next 50 years, right? No, the reality stays, but you must what? Do work in order to stand in that identity. The same thing is true. You don't do work to become married. You do work because you're already married in covenant union, made one by God. And we do the same in our Christian walk. So now we must do the work to live within that reality in the here and now. So let's dive into our text for today and read the opening that we read a couple weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, and then we'll continue into our text in Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Let's look there. 
Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Paul begins with the command to slay the idolatry in your heart. To slay the idolatry in your heart. That word slay is meant to be violent, to slaughter. Have you ever gone to a butcher and seen someone slaughter an animal? It's violent. It's violent activity. This is the violence we are called to in killing our own flesh. Paul begins with the command to put something to death. The old Puritan word is mortification. It means to put something to death. He then follows this with a list of sexual vices or sins. And so a quick reading would render someone with the shameful feeling of, that's often taught in many youth groups, sex is gross, save it for the one you love, right? Sexuality is bad, so I should stay away from sex. But that is not at all what's being said here. There is a nuance regarding sexual behavior that should not be applied universally, and we'll get to that in a moment. But even before that, we need to read carefully to understand Paul's aim. The first thing we notice is that he uses the umbrella term of putting to death what is earthly in us. Now, this should cause us to pause because he said just right before that, in verses 1 through 4, notice, right before that, he said, set your mind on things that are above. Where is he talking about there? Heaven. Heaven in contrast with earth. Not on things that are on the earth, he says. And reading this from the view of the Jews and Greeks at this point in time, their cosmology was that the earth was below, below that was hell, and the heavens were above, and the highest heaven was the throne room of God. And with just a simple knowledge of the New Testament and the story of Christ, we have to ask the question, what is in that throne room, that highest heaven? Well, it's an enthroned Christ ruling over a ransomed people. You see, when we think about heaven, we don't think just utopia or the place where I get to do whatever I want, or ultimate retirement for life, we think of what heaven is, the throne room of God. So when we set our minds on things above, we think of God in his ultimate authority in Christ, ruling over a ransom people. That's what it means to think on heaven above. 
The author of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Spiritually, he says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is being spoken to people that are still in the present earthly realm, but they, as Christians, have come to this new reality, this heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly. That word there is ecclesia. It means the church, the gathering of who? The firstborn, Christ, who are enrolled in heaven. There's a membership role, so to speak. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of the blood of Abel. The heaven reality of what occurred because of Jesus' death and resurrection is that his kingdom has been established. The throne room scene of the prophetic book of Daniel has been fulfilled and Christ has been enthroned over his kingdom and his people. Because Christ and his throne room exist outside of the earthly reality of time and space, he is all at once enthroned over all the saints through the history past and history future of the church. Your mind will get blown when you truly think about what that means. And it's to this reality that we point when we gather in this simple warehouse building as a local church each Lord's Day. And so here in Colossians, Paul is calling us to purposefully and consistently set our mind to the reality that Christ is enthroned over us as king and we are his subjects engaged in a daily proclamation of that fact. And one day, this heavenly truth will collide with this present earthly shadow. But until then, it will take difficult and grueling work on our part to put to death all of that which wants to contradict this truth and delude us into believing we can happily exist in our own, excuse me, our own idolatry. One of the most obvious ways that we exist in that delusion is in how we as humans engage our sexuality. Our sexuality speaks more about who we worship than possibly anything else in our lives. That's why it is such a battlefield right now and has been. Our acceptance and contentment and celebration of the gender in which God makes, made us speaks to our submission to Christ. Our war against it speaks to our rebellion. Our embrace of our gender roles within the church and family speaks to our submission to Christ as our head. Our fight against it speaks to our rebellion. Our submission to Christ's command to use our sexuality only within the covenant boundaries of a marriage submitted to his loving rule it displays his good order to the world. Our pursuit of Christ's call to then disciple the fruit of our sexual union because procreation and sex are tied together, they are not separate. If Christ blesses us with children, well, this speaks to our desire to participate with him in being fruitful and multiplying those within his kingdom. To believe the lie that we are actually gods who get to decide our own reality or that our bodies are only our own and not God's, that is what ultimately is the outcome of idolatry. 
And I'm not making this up because this is what the word says. What more obvious way have we given into our idolatry in our contemporary culture than deciding what we should do with our sexuality in complete rebellion against God's good order? Us sculpting gods in our own likeness after our own morality that will allow us to exist within our own opinion as the only authority. Paul clearly points this out in a parallel passage in Romans 1. There he spells out the lie of idolatry and closely attaches it with the eventual guaranteed outcome that idolatry will manifest itself in sexual activity that rebels against God's created good natural order. You can recall it from Romans 1. Here are a few of those verses. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the truth? That God is the authority. We are not. Verses 21 through 25, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, meaning they became gods in their own, Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, just as our society does so much now. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, idolatry, man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In other words, they exchanged the truth that God is authority for the lie that I am the authority and worshiped and served themselves, the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so back in our text from Colossians, we see this sexual vice list placed between two statements, notice, of Christ's place of authority. First, in verses one through four, It's the call to hold in mind the heaven reality of his enthronement. And secondly, right after this vice list is the fact that the earthly rebellion against his good order would lead to Christ from his throne, rendering judgment against mankind for our idolatry in wrath. It's sandwiched between two statements of his authority. Look at verse 5 in our text as it spells out this idolatry and uses sexuality, the innate outcome of our idolatry, to spell it out. A basic reading of it seems to attach the qualifier of idolatry to just the activity of covetousness, but it actually modifies all the preceding activities because they have at their root covetousness. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so this idea of earthly is to set ourselves up as authority, not God. The first is sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's the word porneia. It encompasses any sexual activity outside of that which takes place in the God-ordained covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Yes, a man and a woman. We must be careful to avoid the trap, though, of many past generations of the church that quickly painted all sexuality as earthly and did not make the distinction between that which is ordained within the marital union and that which is outside of it. Within marriage, sexual union and sexuality is to be pursued, to be cherished and understood as a picture of the closeness and intimacy 
of Christ with his bride, the church. So sex is not gross. It is divine and wonderful in the confines in which God gave us his good order. In the confines of what God as the authority allows. Impurity is next in the list, and it's the underlying immorality that feeds the sexual activity and desires to do what ought not to be done. And passion is the lust that lies behind the drive to act on that impurity. Evil desire and covetousness are closely linked, and they speak of a greed to have more than another, to have what another might possess. It's as if Paul is using the Ten Commandments as his backdrop and reminding us that idolatry, which is broken in the first four commandments, leads to all kinds of depravity spelled out in the last six commandments, ending with, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Paul is stating clearly that we must put these earthly activities to death, but, he is, but is he simply saying, stop it, as the false leaders were doing a chapter earlier. You guys recall that. Look at Colossians 2. Paul outlines what the false teachers are saying. They're saying in verse 21 of chapter 2, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, stop it. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, religious ceasing, well, I will just stop eating chocolate during Lent. That does no one any good because it doesn't actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because at the core of that desire, that impurity is idolatry. And so there is a difference between what Paul is calling the church to do, put to death the flesh, and what the false leaders are calling the church to do. The difference is that the false teachers are promoting the idea that one can simply become severe enough to the flesh in a sense of religious abstinence that it will result in automatic morality. And Paul says, good luck. That is of no use. It will actually result in falling further into the indulgence of the flesh. I am the chiefest of sinners of this. I am going to eat so well this week, I say, and I do really well for the first day. I log all my calories, I get on the treadmill, and then that night, I am so hungry that one can of Pringles becomes two, and one sleeve of Oreos becomes, well, you guys get the picture, right? And guys, that's a sin that's fit for public consumption, is it not? What about the deeper heart impurities that go on in our lives? It actually results in falling further into the indulgence of the flesh. Rather, Paul says that we must work to put down not just the activities of the flesh, but the flesh itself. That's what he's using this list to denote. The idolatry that serves as the foundation to that which causes us to act contrary to the law of God. And so blatantly deny the truth that he is God and king. When we separate the call to be moral from the one who has given the law, we will fall into further sin. And so how do we do this? How do we get to the root of idolatry? Well, we must make it our daily aim 
to do as Paul commands and set our minds on Christ as our king because, friends, how quickly do we forget that he is authority and we are not? Every one of us will literally leave this room to go fellowship out there and immediately in our conversations, we will start to become authority. Our feelings, our emotions, our experience, our background, our baggage, it suddenly reigns supreme. Does it not? And so Paul is calling us to set our minds constantly on the fact that Christ is king. And the Puritan John Owen says this in his classic work, Mortification of the Flesh. He says this, There is no way of deliverance from the state and condition of being in the flesh but by the Spirit of Christ. And he says, A sense of the love of Christ in the cross lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. Paul told us in chapter 2 that all the religious individualism of the false teachers was detached from the head, Christ. It's a morality that is aside from Jesus. And it's what, quite honestly, the majority of the American church pursues. A morality devoid of Christ. That's why it has failed in our country. What Paul is commanding is that we bring ourselves under Christ's lordship by daily fighting to kill all that is within us that seeks to usurp his throne. And friends, what that means then is that our seeking of wisdom by his word becomes not just something we do in the mornings, it becomes life itself. And our seeking of wisdom by his word becomes a necessity in the morning. We know we cannot continue because if we do, we are headed for destruction within 24 hours. It becomes a chance to pierce through the idolatry that arises when we awake. Our prayers, they become an earnest begging of Christ to kill our sinful selves. Destroy me, O Lord, we pray every morning. Our seeking out of fellowship then becomes a divine support group. Hi, my name is Hans, and I am a sinner because I believe I'm the authority in my life. And the fellowship around us partners with us in killing our idolatry and building up our worship of Christ. And friends, we recognize that these are not just religious things we do to be more moral, to have a happier purpose-driven life. These are weapons with which Christ has armed us to slaughter, to crucify the flesh with its idolatrous desires. And so we then wield them daily hourly, moment by moment, whenever our flesh raises up like the cockroach it is unwilling to die. Now, friends, this sounds violent and it sounds exhausting because it is. It is. It is warfare to which we are called as those who have been crucified with Christ. And friends, I beg of you, each of you, brothers and sisters, please hear me. Hear my heart. If you continue to seek after a comfortable religion in Christianity, you will never find Christ. Because we worship a God who had to be violently crucified to deal with our flesh. Friends, once you make this a habit, This moment-by-moment crucifixion of the flesh, and please hear me, this is not something I've accomplished. It is something I am trying and striving to gain along with you. 
But once we have made it a habit, in those moments where it actually takes place, and we realize it was difficult to begin, but then we realize it brings more refreshment than we could ever even hope for. Amen? Dear Christian, I beg of you, rise up each day with the purpose to slay the idolatry in your heart. In the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Beg Christ by his spirit to humble your heart and kill the idolatry in your life and then willingly submit to their removal as he shows you what they are. Brother, sister, I want to ask you this morning, what is your idol that causes you to set yourself up as lawgiver and judge against the clear and truthful word of God? Some might say, well, it's power, or it's sex, or it's money, or it's pleasure, or it's comfort. But friends, if you dig deep enough at the end, if you're like me, when you finally go down to the root of your idolatry, it is this. You and I want to be the final authority on what is good and what is evil. And so we make idols in our own image. And that, my friends, is what you and I must kill each day. Slay the idolatry in your heart. But before we move on from this vice list, we must pause for a moment and remember Who is he addressing here when he says you? It's the plural you, much like our friend Jared last week pointed out to us in the book of Ephesians. Paul is calling the collective body of Christ at Colossae to enter into the mission together, the commission, the co-mission, to slay their fleshly idolatry. Paul is calling the collective body of Christ at Colossae and the collective body of mission in Salem to slay their fleshly idolatry. And he seems to flow from this vice list of sexual impurity into a vice list that is likewise relational and interpersonal. If we read this section just as a call for us to act in our own individual morality, we have completely missed Paul's point. In fact, he's trying to speak to the collective. The first vice list spoke of sin in sexual relationships, and this second list speaks of sin in interpersonal relationships. And he joins them together. Let's take a look here at verse 7. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul points to the fact that their identity has been changed by Christ. They were once pagans who reveled in pagan worship and the sexual immorality that accompanied it. And this is seen throughout the Old Testament in the connection between Israel's idolatry and its comparison to whoring after an adulterous relationship. The two became almost synonymous in the mind of the Jewish people. And here is an example uh, that we'll talk about in Judges 2.17. In Judges 2.17, it says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. 
And so Paul is going to call them to cease, like the false religious leaders, but he's going to do so from the point of idolatry. And what he is telling them, what he is calling them to do in this section in verses 7 through 9, is to stop dividing like Adam. Stop dividing like Adam. Now, it's going to take us a moment to break this down. You might look at this and go, Hans, Adam's nowhere in here. And he's saying, stop doing anger, wrath, malice, slander. Where's dividing? Just follow with me. You'll see that this is exactly what he's saying. Stop dividing like Adam. Paul starts with this command to slay our earthly idolatry at the core of each person's heart and moves into a more corporate and collective view of how that idolatry manifests itself among the body of Christ. This first section was idolatry. And Paul, as a Jew, knew this. He saw that Old Testament image of idolatry being connected to sexual immorality left and right. And so he's writing this to the Colossians. Stop with the idolatry. You guys once walked in that, that manifested in sexual immorality, but now you got to put all of this away, and he moves into these interpersonal statements. He reiterates that we have moved from that lifestyle and submission to that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Look again at verse 7. In these, in this idolatry, too, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. The phrase, put them all away, is very simply the command to cease. Stop it. Leave no room for them in the body of Christ. And then he gives a vice list of all that causes conflict among the body of Christ. He begins with anger and wrath. Now this is curious because Paul elsewhere, in Ephesians 4.26, he commands the church to be angry and not sin. Look at this. This is his writing. Be angry. That's a command. But be angry at what? The context there tells us. It's be angry at sin in the midst of the body. But he says, don't add to it. Do not sin. And then he says, make sure you deal with your anger quickly. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Work quickly to get it out of the body of Christ. So the anger and wrath he's talking about here in Colossians is that which flows from the idolatry that sets oneself up as judge and king over others. The anger we are called to in Ephesians is the collective anger that should be present in the body of Christ. When one of our number refuses to submit to King Jesus and thus causes division among the body. They're two totally different sets of anger. One is based in Christ's rule and one is based in my rule or your rule. Wrath then flows into a malice, which is the desire to use our anger, our false authority, to carry out verbal or physical harm with a self-justification that is warranted because one's own anger or hurt becomes delusionally sovereign. And this verbal harm is often then put forth in slander, which is the act of damaging another's reputation, most often using vague and manipulative language that casts aspersions on a person's character unjustly. And this is common when, in the midst of conflict, one party desires to draw others to take on their view of the conflict. In psychology, it's called triangulation. And Paul's point is that this is how the world acts from its idolatry. The church, though, is to stand in contrast to that image because the greatest call to the church is to maintain unity in Christ, submitted under his law. 
acting quickly amidst conflict that will happen to repent and forgive and reconcile. You see, we are to be an object lesson of the gospel's power among men. And this is the spirit that flows forward into the phrase obscene talk and further into the command to not lie to one another. Both of these are in the context of that which causes division. Obscene talk is more than simply dirty talk. It is that, but it's more than that. It's rather vulgar speech aimed towards another with whom you are in conflict. And the lying outlined here is that which is meant to mislead another so that division grows amidst warring parties from within the church, fracturing the unity of the body of Christ and the glory it is meant to portray. Paul is most likely summarizing here a form of the Old Testament holiness code given to the assembly of God's people. He's not just saying something new. He's reiterating and pulling forward all of the Old Testament knowledge into this simple list of vices. Our first reading this morning was from that holiness code. It was a small section outlined in Leviticus 17 through 26. You can go read the whole thing. It's called the holiness code, Leviticus 17 through 26. But notice what's at the core of the holiness code. This is from Leviticus 19, 11, and 16 through 17. It's a portion of what we read earlier. And notice what it's doing. It's governing interpersonal relationships among Israel, among God's people, to make them vastly contrasting to the pagans around them. You shall not steal you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Does this sound familiar to anything we've read in Colossians today? In these, too, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. It is this holiness code that Christ even summarized when asked what the greatest commandment was. At the end of this section we read earlier, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Christ summarized it as love God, Yahweh, the Lord, and as a result, you love his people. Because remember, to the Jew, the neighbor was who? The covenant Jews. And to Israel, all of the law given to regulate their conduct and cause them to be a peculiar people was for the purpose of loving God and being united as a people in obedience to him to be contrary to the world around them. Unfortunately, we know the story. This did not work. Israel was fractured with rebellion of the people and division amongst each other and conflict that was unresolved and split the kingdom in two, and it led to eventual destruction. They had been chosen by Yahweh. They had been given his law to govern them, and yet they could not fulfill their purpose to bring Yahweh glory. How could this happen? Well, we're told in the Old Testament that it was because they were still walking in the likeness of Adam the original rebel against God's rule. Remember that Adam had his own interpersonal problems, didn't he, after he fell? What did he do as soon as he fell and God questioned him? He immediately blamed and slandered in anger and self-justification. And who was that slander aimed at? 
his wife. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? And that was the state of Israel's heart as well. They were like Adam. They blamed everyone else but themselves. And the prophets made clear that for them to glorify Yahweh and function under his rule would require a heart change at the deepest level of their being. And this was the hope to which they were called. This was what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Friends, this is the old self that is spoken of here. And more appropriately, the old humanity that Paul mentions here in our text. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the Adam-like nature, the old humanity. As a backing to the command to not lie to one another, he says this. And this is a shorthand reference to what he said earlier in Colossians 2. Would you look back there with me? Colossians 2, 9 through 13. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember what's happened to you. Remember what Christ has accomplished by his spirit. Look at Colossians 2, 9 through 13. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, he says, collectively to the church at Colossae. You, he says, collectively to the church at Mission Fellowship. You have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Amen, amen, amen. The awaited change of heart had happened and has happened for anyone whom the Lord has converted and drawn into the church. This spiritual work is the circumcision of the heart made without hands. It's done by the Spirit. And the baptism we have each undergone as Christians is the showing of that work. And so Paul is reiterating that if this heart change has actually occurred in you and I and in these Colossian Christians, then we must act in the new heart that we have been given. We must stop being like the old nature, the old Adam that was crucified and buried, and start acting in the new nature that has been raised with Christ. But friends, this takes purposeful action. So many of us, myself included, we wait around for the Spirit to overtake us so that following Christ is easy. It's comfortable and it just is natural. One day, I think, if I just read my Bible enough, one day I'll just naturally act like a Christian, right? Anybody else fall into that trap? Does anyone else ever think that way? Four of you are sinners like me. Good job. Paul is using the phrases put off and put on because it requires action on our part as it is decidedly unnatural for our fleshly hearts. The hard part has been done by God. Our dead heart has been made alive. The divine CPR has restarted our heart in a new and different way. This was God's. This was Christ's monergistic work, meaning that he alone could accomplish it. We had no part in the work of justification that reconciled us to God. Zero. But now, we are called to partner with the Spirit in a synergistic work, meaning that we work together to fulfill our purpose as his people in sanctification. 
Remember that sanctification means the work of being set apart in holiness so that we look more and more like Christ as his body on this earth. The world can look at the sanctified church, Christ's body, and see Christ. That is the hope. But sanctification requires work on our part. Not to be justified, that's already been done in the monergistic work of God. Not to be glorified, that is assured, that is likewise a work only he can do. But right now, to move from justification to glorification, we're in the midst of sanctification. And to fulfill our purpose as his people to bring him glory, we must slaughter our flesh and stop dividing like Adam. We must put in the work to do so. And so this work that must occur is to first put off our old self. The imagery here is to put off and put on like clothing. It would have been very familiar to the Colossian Christians as it was traditional practice of new converts in the early church. As part of the baptism process, the new converts would put off the clothing of their old life and they'd put on new white clothing that symbolized the change that occurred by the Spirit in their life. That's an action. Is it not? You guys get up in the morning and go, clothes on, and just hope it happens? No, you have to, if you're like me, wobbling, you have to put on your pants. You have to do your work, right? You have to act. Now notice that all of this language we're looking at in what we're to put off is interpersonal. And remember, it's linked to our old idolatry that lifts up ourselves as highest authority. What Paul is commanding the church of Colossae and what he's commanding the church of Mission Fellowship to do is to cease operating relationally in a way in which we are king and judge of one another. Now, friends, this takes purposeful action. It first requires us to take responsibility for the partiality that we show those who are like us in our local church or who we naturally are drawn towards. We must choose, choose instead to step outside of our comfort zone in who we interact with so that we can say that we truly love the body of Christ and not just certain parts of it that we're partial to. That takes action. It takes something as simple as not sitting in the same spot every Sunday next to the same people every Sunday. It takes action of going to someone who you've seen their face and you know who you are You've seen their face for three years, but you do not know their name because you haven't taken the initiative to go talk to them. Today, I call you to do so. I call you to use the directory of members to pray for people and learn their names and learn their stories and know them. It takes purposeful action. It requires us to recognize that the purpose of glorifying Christ and pointing to his gospel is greater than my need to self-protect or validate my own feelings and emotions as king, or protect my own wounds. For it's when we turn these priorities around and we put ourselves as king and Jesus not at all, that ungodly anger and wrath and malice and the rest come forth. And it requires purposeful action in keeping short, short accounts when we find even the smallest hint of bitterness creeping up in our hearts towards each other. We think, oh no, we'll put that off. It'll, it'll get better, won't it? Yeah, I, I'm upset with that person, but you know, I, I just need to look over the top of it. Friends, how often does that work? Married couples, how, how often does that work? Never. Say that louder, please. Never. It never, never, ever, ever, ever works. 
We are fools to keep doing it. And notice I said we. Look at what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 12, 15. Oh, did I not put it in there? There it is. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one falls, uh, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it. That's activity. This commands the people of God to be on guard for bitterness in their own souls so that they can deal with it at a moment's notice. Friends, our collective desire for the glory of God's gospel of reconciliation through the work of Christ should be so strong that we fight daily to protect the unity of the community of faith around us from the root of bitterness because it can so easily grow in our own hearts. If we allow it to fester out of a desire to self-protect or be liked or justify our division or our isolation, we must quickly realize idolatry has overtaken the worship of Christ in our life because we have not put it down. Friends, I confess to you today that I am a hypocrite in teaching this because I have walked in and allowed this old humanity to define me interpersonally many times in the history of this church. Over the last 12 years, especially in planting and then replanting this church, I have found myself taking wounds and hurts of interpersonal strife with others and using them to form an idolatrous and false God that has wrongly allowed me to self-protect and isolate. I've been wounded once, I think, in my head. God will allow me to isolate and not be wounded again. And this false God is one that allows me the ability to be angry and speak at times in a way that causes division rather than unity. And with every passing hurt, I would contort the image of Jesus into an idol after my own heart that justified my actions rather than allowing the conviction of God's word to force me to bring the hurt to him and address the hurt with my brothers and sisters. And God, forgive me for that. God, have mercy on my soul for that. And I've done the same in my own marriage. I've done the same with those who are dear to me in ministry. And friends, the natural byproduct when we do this is that we separate from God's people and we separate from God's word that convicts and we separate from the head, Jesus Christ, the true head, not one formed in our own image. And our religion becomes a shadow of what it should be because we begin to forget that the entire purpose for which Christ has saved each of us and brought us into his people is so that we can unite together in him to display his glory to the nations. May the Lord and may each of you forgive me for those times that I have acted in isolation or self-protection rather than purposeful striving for unity. And may he convict me and each of us to move forward with a different heart, to move forward in the unity of the gospel that is so much greater than any of our hearts. Friends, if you find yourself, even in this moment, operating in anger or wrath or malice or slander, if you find yourself in conversations where slandering of 
this church or the people in it is done, or you find any root of bitterness in yourself rather than unity amongst God's people, please heed Paul's word to put it aside, to kill it, to destroy it. Do the work this week and even today to begin healing any relational breach that leaves room for the accuser of the brethren to set up a root of bitterness among us. Work hard, dear friends, and I pray that the Lord would allow me by his spirit to lead you well in this. Work hard to not just think that our garden is good because it's got some pretty flowers on top, all the while roots of bitterness are festering underneath. Let's get one of those big old jumbo diggers, the rototillers, you know what I'm talking about, that digs up the dirt so that every root of bitterness is put on the surface and we can burn it so that that garden becomes as beautiful and fertile as God intends it to be. Would you join me in that work? You see, Jesus was quite clear that our words and the way we act interpersonally are the evidence of the state of our hearts. He said this in Matthew, Matthew 12, 35 through 37. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our interpersonal actions, our words, they show the state of our heart. And so are we going to be saved by doing good words, by saying good words? No, his point is, is it states the nature of your heart. And like Paul, he says, if you have been raised, if you are saved, if you have the Spirit in you, then it will manifest in the way that you relate with one another. And Paul now agrees with Christ and uses our words to show us whether or not we are acting within our new blood-bought humanity. Dear brothers and sisters, let us commit today together to examine our speech and hearts towards one another and ask the Lord to reveal any wicked way within us. And friends, I have to be clear, this does not mean we gloss over hurt. This does, mean, does not mean we never get angry. It means be angry and do not sin. We should so glorify Jesus and so lift up his gospel that we fight for it to be made known amongst us. We fight for unity in it, not in anything else. This is what we should do every week when we take communion. This is why we walk through communion the way we do and we take that pause to examine our hearts and think, is there bitterness that I have towards anyone in here? If so, I am not going to walk forward. I'm going to go directly to that person and I am going to confess and make it right so that unity can abound rather than just putting on airs to go to the table of communion. If we find that we have in any way been living in the image of Adam, as Paul notes here in Colossians, and not the image of Christ who gave his own life so that unity and reconciliation could occur, let us repent and put the old man away. If we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and made his people, then we have no other choice. Amen? We must heed Paul's call to slay the idolatry in our hearts so that we stop dividing like Adam. And when we obey this call, there is then room to strive for unity like Christ.
to strive for unity like Christ. Take a look at verses 10 through 11. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self, the old humanity, the old Adamic nature with its practices, and verse 10, and have put on the new self, the new humanity. We know who this is because he says, It is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, and it is Christ who is all and in all. Here there is no division. There is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Strive for unity like Christ. This new self that we have put on is not just an individualistic change. All of the discussion throughout the Old Testament regarding the circumcision of our hearts that Paul referenced in chapter 2 has to do with making a new collective people, a new humanity. You can't be changed in heart individually without also be adding to the collective that has been changed in heart. And there is no collective without the individual change in heart. You can think, for example, of Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice that this work of conversion at a heart level is not just so I can be saved. It is so God can create a people who declare his glory. There is no individual salvation without being saved into the church because our purpose is not personal salvation. It is the glory of God. This is the work that we are collectively engaged in together. This is what you have joined if you have joined as a member of this church. As we enter into fellowship with one another, we are giving our lives over to Christ and each other. And this is what Paul meant when he said that we, as members, belong to one another. Our members, one of another. And in the midst of that, because we are human, we're still fighting that fleshly nature every day, naturally, conflict, hurt, disagreement, and strife, they will occur. Friends, that will not go away before heaven. But the question is, what do we do when it happens and how quickly do we do something about it? It is in these moments that we must, like the athlete learning a new skill, be purposeful about killing our old habits and practicing the new. And friends, we may fail at first. We might airball some shots. Okay, great. I'm going to go talk to this person. I know we've got conflict. I'm going to try this. I go and do it and airball. It's going to happen at first. But keep working at it. Keep working at it. Because as we continue practicing this way of relating within the new humanity that Christ has purchased by his blood, it will become easier and more fluid and more obvious. It will become second nature. And this is what Paul means when he says that this new humanity is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Rather than trying to take knowledge forcefully as Adam did, which resulted in division from God and man, God is freely giving us knowledge as we engage these situations faithfully based upon what the word commands us to do. And we act obediently with God's glory as our collective goal, not my comfort. Friends, until you and I slay our desire and idolatry of comfort, we will never have the hard conversations we need to have. 
Our comfort and our desire to be seen as okay is the biggest barrier to having the discussions that will kill the root of bitterness. And what this accomplishes here among God's people is unity. Notice Paul's wording in verse 11. He randomly starts the sentence with, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. Here where? What's he talking about? Here in this new humanity, in the church, in this local expression of Christ's universal body, there is unity. The natural and earthly lines of division no longer function. Jew versus Greek, circumcised versus uncircumcised. And the outcasts, such as the barbarians and Scythians were in the Hellenistic Greek world, they're no longer outcasts, but are brought in with joy and unified with the body. There's no longer a difference between the servant or the master, the slave or the free, but Christ dwells in each by his spirit, uniting us into one people under the guiding rule and binding love of Christ. And this point is very important to Paul. He states a similar claim in two other letters where he connects the baptism of believers being, in the, uh, being the entry into the unity of God's people. Take a look at Galatians 3, 27 through 28, a verse that is wrongly used to fight against God's good order in the church and gender roles. It was meant for speaking of unity, not feminism. Galatians 3, 27 through 28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is not God saying, oh yeah, don't worry about gender. Okay, that is a new invention, right? This is talking about unity. Don't break apart along worldly lines. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Unity. Commentator Douglas Moo points out that, quote, this is a great quote, these earthly identities are no longer what is most important. Solidarity in Christ is now the ruling paradigm for the new community. End quote. Solidarity in Christ is our commanded purpose. How badly we have failed as the church of Christ. But this is where the ideal must meet the practical. When we look at the church today, even as we look at ourselves, is this what we see? And the answer is no. Do we see unity in Christ that overrules our personal hurts so that we might glorify Christ and our love for one another? We must say no. We see over and over again conflict that leads to hurt, then anger, then division. So let's pause for a moment and ask, why is that? Why are we so far from this picture that Paul paints? Well, the answer is right here in our text, praise God. We are, in his words, verse 10, being renewed after the image of our creator. Friends, we are in process. And with each passing struggle of interpersonal pain, we are learning more and more that we must be active in fighting our idolatry of self and our idolatry of our feelings and emotions so that we can kill the idolatry, cease from dividing, and instead purpose to unify in spite of ourselves. Let me say that again. Purpose to unify in spite of ourselves. How do we do that? Well, we must willingly submit to the gospel as the law of the church. 
Listen with me to the words Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesus 2 as he describes the gospel. And think about it in this context of how the church should function in relationship. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. There's those worldly divisions which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the people of God, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And that's not just a ceasing of conflict, friends. That is wholeheartedness who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, in his body. What is that? What is Christ's body? It is the church. One new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the gospel, is it not? This is the gospel. What is the whole message of the gospel? That through Christ's atoning work, God took sinful, earthly, hateful rebels who were divided from one another and separated from God by our sin, and he reconciled us to God and to one another. We must constantly work to remember this gospel that unites us and defines us as a people and rules over our relationships and shows us the path of true unity. And we will only do this purposeful work if we stay connected to the head, Jesus Christ. Because, friends, I know that my sovereign suffering of the aggrieved creeps up in order to be king the second I'm wounded. Does it do that for you? For in our relationship with him, we are reminded every day that his very life and death was for the purpose of reconciling a people in rebellion against God and one another. How did he do it? He purposefully put aside his own feelings and self-justification in the service of the Father and the Father's plan of salvation. Lord, if there's any other way that's more comfortable and puts me at the center, please let me do that. But, not my will, but your will be done. He died in the face of the greatest injustice and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and abuse and lies, and none of it was deserved. I deserve malice and anger and abuse and obscene talk. So do you. And he died in the face of all of it so that you and I might be forgiven and reconciled to the Father and to one another. Friends, if you do not know Christ today and you have not submitted to him as Lord, today is the day he is calling you to do so. And if that is you, one of the pastors would love to talk with you after service about what it is to follow Christ as Lord. But now I must ask those of us who know Christ and are members of his body Friends, into what kind of people are we calling new converts if we are not actively working to strive for unity centered upon the gospel? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Friends, we are no longer the king of our own lives. We must submit to one another as practical participation in our submission to Christ. And friends, this is most important when it seems the hardest for us to accomplish. But that is why we must heed Paul's commands to do the hard work of slaying the idolatry in our lives and actively ceasing from division like Adam and actively striving for unity like Christ. Friends, I must repent first and foremost and help lead in this, and I would ask you to repent as well and walk with me in it, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. But let me finish with this encouragement, if I may. As I call us to take on this Herculean task, Paul calls us to. Brothers and sisters of mission, I know that this is possible in you. You have already been changed, and you have the Spirit of God within you that is empowering you to display the glory of Christ for all the world to see. I know this, dear friends, because I watched last week as you loved the Garcia family. I know this, dear friends, because I watched on Friday night as you loved the Schrock family. Jared and Lori Garcia, the missionaries from last week, were so encouraged by your hospitality and your kindness and your love for one another and your enthusiasm for God's word and your strong desire to love the church that Jared said to me, I hope I can accomplish in the Philippines what the Lord is doing at mission. There could be no greater compliment to what the Lord is doing in you. I know this because I saw many of you come together Friday to mourn with the Schrock family in their grief, grief over the death of their son, Rowan. I saw your love for one another. Friends, you have it in you to accomplish the commands of Christ in this passage because God is at work renewing us in the image of himself. So with that collective challenge that we have been given, the collective understanding and conviction that we have been given, we can also walk out of this room with great encouragement because it is not us who will accomplish this. It is Christ through us, just as we sang. And he is willing and ready to do the work, are we? I think we are. So be encouraged this morning along with that conviction. And while you are encouraged, strive from the grace already given to you by Christ and work purposefully with the Holy Spirit in the heavy labor of putting our old nature to death so that our new nature might live to the glory and worship of Christ. Mission Fellowship, let's work together to slay the idolatry in our hearts so that we stop dividing like Adam and instead strive for unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for a church that is willing to put in the work to unpack your word to great depths. Thank you for a group of people that are willing to love and show hospitality like this church did last week and last Friday. Lord, thank you for your spirit most of all that works within these people. And so, Lord, I pray that the conviction and encouragement that we have been given today would work at a foundational level, that it would break down every part of what we have built up in our own power, and it would destroy it and wipe it away so that the house that you are building might be rebuilt with Christ as the cornerstone, your word through the prophets and the apostles of the foundation, and that each of us might be put in place as an enduring stone based upon you, holding one another up, securing each other in the foundation and the building and the walls of your temple in which you are glorified and in which you join heaven and earth together. And let us, Mission Fellowship, be a place where we can cry out, save us, Lord, sinners, but also recognize that we have been made new as saints and that we are empowered to do this work of standing firm in the solidarity of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we pray that you would be all in this church and in all. This is our prayer this morning. We pray this and we ask this in the power of Jesus as our king and highest authority above any other power, any other authority, including our own hearts. Amen.